This is the word of the Lord. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Join me in a a quick word of prayer. Well, Lord, we have considered thus far in Isaiah uh, the most messianic of prophets. This coming king that the world expected in his time. Lord, we have seen that he's not been a king like we've expected him to be, and yet he is precisely the king that we all need. This morning, as we hear the rain falling, I just pray that your grace would fall like rain on us, and that you would cause us to Receive what you have to say to us today about this king. Strengthen your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being seated. Well, some of you may know that the Earl family is deep into high school wrestling at the current time. Um, If you ever decide to go into high school wrestling with your child, weigh the cost. Uh, Your weekends and nights will be taken up for several months. It's a really long season, but we have enjoyed it so much. My, uh, My man Connor, my oldest son, has gone out for wrestling the first time, for the first time as a freshman in high school. And he's doing really well. But if you've if you've never gone to a match, I just I encourage you to at least check out one match sometime. They're super, super fun to watch. Even if your kid is not on the match, on the mat, there's just something exciting about watching strength and skill and technique all sort of coalesce into this six-minute bout of strength. 
recently there was a, a match that uh, Connor's team had, and um, everyone's watching the 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 mat uh, the match to the bout take place, and everybody's having a good time, and the two kids are on the ground and they're wrestling, and all of a sudden one of the kids let out a great shout, a great yell. And so everybody, of course, is listening, and they're trying to pay attention as to what's going on. And as you looked closer, you saw the arm of one of the young men bent on the mat the other direction in a way that God did not intend for our arms to bend. And so the excitement of the crowd is arrested. And of course, you know, the ref stops the match, and and they had to set this poor kid's arm back into place uh, before they called an ambulance, and he let out a a loud scream, and it was so painful, obviously, and uh, you just felt so bad for this young man. Well, for some of us, Christmas time can feel like that wrestling match. It can feel like that young man. For most of us, this is an exciting time of year. We've talked a lot about that. We can't uh, wait to give or, or maybe get presents. Uh, we're surrounded by way too much good food, way too many sweets. Uh, the family comes into town. The music is playing. There's Christmas lights. And, you know, Andy Williams, he had it right. It really is the most wonderful time of the year. But, but for some, Christmas is a reminder that something isn't right that something is bent the wrong way. For some of us, maybe in this room, it is a reminder of loss. The loss of someone you love is felt acutely at this time of year. There's a relationship that you were in for a long time that's now behind you, and there's no chance of it being recovered. For some It's the years that can't be recovered. There's years that have gone by that you are reminded of acutely at this time of year. You're reminded that things just aren't right. You're reminded that you're alone at Christmas time. You're reminded that things are not as they should be. And friends, you know, in one sense, we all feel this to an extent, don't we? We all know what that feels like. No matter how joyful our Christmas time is actually for us, as we look around and we observe the events that are going on around us at the moment in the world, we just feel that things are not right. Things are bent the wrong way. We each have an arm bent the wrong way. We're worried about the things in life. There's, there's unresolved conflict in the house, maybe between parent and child, or between husband and wife. Maybe there's a temptation in in your heart to hold a grudge against someone that you're struggling to forgive for some wrongdoing that they have done against you. Maybe for you, it's, it's the debt you know is waiting when January comes. And so, as we open up this text, the question for us is, how can we keep going? How do we keep going with this painful bend Is there any hope for us that Christmas can offer to people who feel the reality that things are not as they should be, even though everyone around us seems like they're doing okay? You ever feel that way? You're in a room and you feel all alone because you are not doing well, and everyone else is fine, it seems like. 
And it can feel like that when we come together on Sunday morning, can't it? I don't know if this past week I was listening, I heard this song playing in maybe a, a store or something, but Someday at Christmas by Stevie Wonder. And in that song, he, he says this really, really good line. I, I'm not, the song is fine. I know how, why it was written. It was written during the 60s, like the song we looked at last week. Uh, but he says this line. Now think about this. Someday at Christmas, there will be no wars when we have learned what Christmas is for. Now I heard that line and I thought to myself, Stevie Wonder, can you tell me what Christmas is for? And I don't think since 1967 we figured out when the song was written. I don't think we figured out what Christmas is for. But that is actually the precise question that we ought to ask every time this time of year comes rolling around. What is Christmas for? What does it matter? For those of you who are not Christians but you celebrate Christmas, the question you ought to be asking is, does it matter that God sent his son into the world as a baby in a manger? What was God's purpose there? What, was, what is his end game? And so the past couple of weeks, we've been kind of considering this. We, we've looked at a few aspects of Isaiah's uh, Christmas. The first was the problem of Christmas. What's the problem of Christmas? Then we looked at the wonder of Christmas last week in Isaiah 9. And today, we're going to ask the or look at, look at the, 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 the future of Christmas. What is the end game of, of Christmas? And if you were alive in Isaiah's day, you would be wondering this very same thing. If you were alive in the 8th century B.C., you would have a lot of questions about your future. As you considered the failed leadership of your kings and the imminent, the imminent Assyrian invasion that was coming, which God used to judge his people for his sin, you'd be wondering what does our future look like? And maybe some of you are asking that question today. What does my future look like? And for 700 years, through prophetic silence and, and through exile, when it looked like God had all but forgotten his people, what happens on the first Christmas? Isaiah's great light of Isaiah chapter 7 began to shine. And God proved that he keeps his promises. You know, friends, the Bible views redemptive history as a moving thing. It's not a stagnant thing. History, God's history is ever unfolding, even though it feels like ours sometimes is rather stagnant. God's story is moving toward a final day when his enemies are destroyed and Christ makes all things new for his people and Jesus dwells in the midst as their king. And friends, this is why we ought to celebrate Christmas. I know there's a sentiment out there that says, oh, well, God never commanded us to celebrate Christmas. Okay, fine. But let's not trivialize this. Just because we don't see the command in the Scripture, when all throughout the Bible, all throughout salvation history, God has commanded his people to remember to remember the day the Lord brought you out of Egypt. To remember when he parted the Red Sea. To remember his wondrous works in the desert. We just remembered the death of our Savior for our sins in the Lord's Supper. Friends, the birth of the baby in Bethlehem marked the fulfillment of centuries of prophetic longing. 
and it set in motion the redemption of all things. Guys, Christmas is the beginning of the gospel. Christmas signals God's decisive action to address the brokenness of this world. And if you're someone who has been saved by grace, friends, that is worth celebrating. And that's what Isaiah 11 is all about. In chapters 7 and 9, he foretold this divine virgin-born child with the fourfold name who would sit on David's throne forever as king. And in chapter 11, Isaiah focuses on his kingly rule. And friends, we must keep this ever before us if we want to maintain hope in a world that's in upheaval. I have three points for you today. And with a hat tip to Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol, here's my points, and I think this is how this passage is laid out. The king of Christmas passed. The king of Christmas, where's the next one? Present. And then the king of Christmas. Ah, you guys know the story. All right. Watch the George C. Scott version, the best version, hands down. Fight me on that. We watched it last week. Um, and then I'll conclude with just a few points of application. So number one, the king of Christmas passed. Let me draw your attention to verse 1 and verse 10. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 10, And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. Okay, so Isaiah has already introduced this idea that the messianic, virgin-born, divine child would be royalty. This would be a king in David's lineage. And so when Isaiah says in verse 1 that a shoot or literally a young growth, a twig, a branch, a sapling, fill in all your little terms there, would come forth or emerge from what he calls the stump of Jesse. Now you remember, Jesse was the father of King David. But here... The Davidic line, and indeed all of Israel, has been reduced down to nothing but a mere stump. Once a great tree, their sin has plunged them into God's judgment, and the enemy nations have surrounded them and have chopped them down or will chop them down to practically nothing. And this people is not much to look at. They are a mere stump. This past year, I was reminded, we hired a, a, a tree company to come take down these two Bradford pear uh, trees in our front yard, which, by the way, give no pears, and are considered an invasive species. Um, and when they took those tree, trees down, we rejoiced because uh, they ground up the roots. But not long later, only a few weeks later, we began to see little shoots come up out of the ground, or at least I did. And so for the whole rest of the summertime, all the way until the first frost, I was picking out shoots from this little stump that had emerged from their failure to, I guess, get rid of all the root system. Well, friends, that's kind of an image of the, uh, uh, the, the Isaiah is picturing here for us. Um, Judah is a stump ground down to its roots. And all seems lost and all seems hopeless. But out of that stump, the shoot of Jesse will emerge, the Messiah. And that sapling, that branch, will become a great tree, and it will grow so high and so wide and so large that it will bear a massive harvest. Now, follow me. As we saw last week, Isaiah also said that Christ would be the everlasting Father. 
Remember that name that he gave to him? This means that Christ would not only come forth from Jesse, but he would also precede Jesse as well. The shoot of Jesse in verse 1 is the root of Jesse in verse 10. And I think that's why David is not even named here. Isaiah wants to show that the long-awaited Messiah is not merely a great king in David's line. No, he is the preeminent one in greatness to David because he precedes David. When Jesus was having fun with the religious leaders in the temple in Mark 12, he said this, Mark 12, 35 to 37, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared in Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? What's his point? Well, as everlasting father, who cares for his people as we saw last week, as the eternal son, Jesus is. He is. He is long before David. Before Abraham was, he said, I am. He is the king of Christmas past. But as a virgin-born child, he's also David's descendant. So Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David the bright and morning star. Guys, what message is that meant to convey to a people who are in darkness? To a people whose lives are bent the wrong way? Well, loved ones, it says that even though this king's kingdom might not look like much to you right now, and even though you can't see this king, it does not mean that he is not there. And actually, he's been there all along. And friends, people who are being invaded and dragged away by a stronger enemy need to know that their king is not absent and that his silence is not indifference. God's people in every age need to know this, don't we? We need to know this today, especially today, especially as we look back on a salvation that is at the same time complete, yet as yet unfulfilled. We are meant to draw from all the benefits of the it is finished part of Jesus' work, all the glorious justification before the bar of God, a double imputation, Christ's righteousness is on us, our sin went on to him. The sanctifying work of the Spirit, we're meant to enjoy the it is finished part while we as yet wait for the I am coming part of his work. Friends, this this waiting, this waiting may hurt. You may be suffering right now. But Isaiah wants you to know that this waiting is for your good. For your greatest good, even though your good may be painful. But he's not absent. He's not not indifferent. He's always been there. If you're suffering today, Christmas every year should trigger the thought that the baby in the manger came to be with me forever. 
And though things may look bleak now, this king has not left us without help, for his spirit is only but a breath away. Jesus truly is Emmanuel, God with us. Do you feel the darkness encroaching in, closing in? Friend, if you belong to this king, no matter what your circumstances tell you, no matter what you can see with the eye, he's there with you. He's there with you in the dark. So he's the king of Christmas past. But now Isaiah unpacks for us what this king came to do in the king of Christmas present, point two, the verses, verses two and five. Friends, what do we need when things are bent the wrong way? We need a king who knows how to set things right. Now, of course, Jesus is a whole lot more than what Isaiah can put right here, but he's chosen to highlight certain aspects of the Messiah's character because they spoke directly to the situation in Israel. Here you have a people, right, who is being judged by God due to their national abandonment of God's ways. You can read about this in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. King after king has not walked in the ways of the Lord. And because of this, God gave Israel over to his enemies. And from the time of Isaiah, really to the birth of Jesus, God's people are in darkness. So again, follow me. God's people have turned away from him. They've faced his judgment. And yet, as chapter 10 says, God promises people that he would bring justice to them. And he would judge those who harmed them. How? Through the one born king of the Jews described in chapter 11. The king on whom the Lord's spirit fully rests. Notice in verse 2 the sevenfold reference to the Holy Spirit. The number seven in Hebrew thought is the, the number of completion. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would be given temporarily to people for certain tasks. A few had a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Moses was one. Joshua was one. David was one. But the king, the branch of Jesse, will have the Spirit fully and perfectly. He would descend like Jesus on a dove at his baptism, and he would be full of the Spirit without measure, John Chapter 3 tells us. Isaiah tells us that this, this king would be, have a delight, his delight in the fear of the Lord. And that he would wear righteousness and faithfulness like a belt. Jesus described his delight, his reverent concern for the glory of God in John 8 when he said this. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, as with prophecy, we have to kind of discern when are these things fulfilled. And in one sense, verses 3 to 5 was fulfilled in Jesus' earthly ministry, but Isaiah seems to describe a king who has absolute rule of authority, who can speak over the poor and the wicked alike and pronounce judgment with total purity. 
And if you read the New Testament, we see that this is happening now. For example, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that after Christ rose from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of God, and all powers are subject to him. That rule is the goal of Christmas, right? But friends, we know that rule is invisible right now, don't we? We can't see him right now. We know who the king of the universe is, but everyone around us doesn't. We know who the kings of the earth are. We see them. They're in the news. But people don't see this particular king to whom all powers are subject to. We're still, we're still waiting, aren't we? We're still waiting for the king's return. And every Christmas that passes is another reminder of this waiting. And on top of that, even the godliest Christian resists the king's rule from time to time. Forget about the rest of us. Sin is still a reality in our lives. Friends, what if one day we mess up so bad that the king strikes us down, that he pronounces upon us the death sentence? Will this king plead our cause, like it says in verse 4? Will he plead the cause of people who have messed up and continue to mess up so bad and yet who are people who are also sometimes mistreated and maligned, maybe even slandered, maybe gossiped against, maybe even abused. Christmas is a reminder that the darkness is still here. But I also think that this is one reason why Christmas is meant to be a comfort for the Christian. Why did God send his son into the world? God sent his son into the world because he is deeply concerned about injustice. He is deeply concerned about the injustice that the human race has been subject to because it has been plunged into sin. Now, perhaps he could have done this another way. He could have met, mended the brokenness of the world from a distance, perhaps, but friends, he didn't. That was not his plan. God, who needs nothing, wanted to experience firsthand the injustices done to us so that we would have a sympathetic high priest who can plead our cause to the Father forever. And yet, and yet, who is so perfect in wisdom and in righteousness he would never use our sin against us. This king is able to fully give attention to our cause, friends, without distorting the scales of divine justice. In other words, he knows our pain, but he also came to deal with our sin. So he took our death sentence on the cross. But friends, he didn't take everyone's death sentence. What, whose cause in verse 4 did this king come to plead? Do you see it there? But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He came for the humble one. The one who comes to him with nothing in their hand but their sin. 
who doesn't try to come with every kind of accolade that they think they have in their belt, but they come to him saying, I have nothing except this sin. Will you receive me? And the king says, yes, I receive you. You are the kind of person that I came for. You are the one that I, I came for people who put their trust in the king. And because you've come to me in faith, I will pay your debt on the cross and I'll walk with you when you're being mistreated. And one day, one day, when he returns, not the smallest act of injustice done against his people will be left unjudged. He will strike their enemies down for good. Why? Because his people's enemies are his enemies. And he will come with justice for you. Friend, have you, have you come to this king who reigns in heaven and yet who took your death sentence? Have you come to this king who has been existed for all of eternity and yet comes as a child to know and bear your weaknesses and then go to the cross for your sin? He is the king of Christmas present. Oh, but he's also the king of Christmas future. Number three, when we get to verse six, Isaiah obviously describes a period of peace on earth that's still in the future. Here we see uh, formerly carnivorous animals lying down next to animals that were formerly their dinner. Uh, the wolf is with the lamb and the leopard's with the goat, and you have children playing with poisonous snakes, and a little child is leading you know, a procession of like hyenas or something. Now, whether your eschatology takes this as symbolic or literal, you have to decide. For me, I take this as more literal. Uh, I could sit down with you and tell you why I think that is. Um, I also take comfort in this passage because to me this is proof that there are animals in heaven. It's okay, you can disagree. But wherever you are on your end time theology, you can't get by this. This isn't symbolic. Peace and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the world like the waters cover the sea. No strife, no war, no arguments, no goodbyes. Similar language is used in Isaiah 65 when he talks about the new heavens and the new earth when the curse of creation is removed and the whole universe is set right. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Of course, this isn't yet our experience. So what we have here is a very typical feature in Old Testament prophecy. Often the prophets, what they would do is they would be given some sort of information about the future, but the Lord wouldn't give them time markers. And that's why we get into so much trouble with biblical prophecy because we try to put time markers where they don't exist. But uh, what happened is, is that the prophet would be given a certain vantage point. So think about biblical prophecy like a mountain range, okay? 
the prophet sees a mountain in front of him. Beyond that is another mountain. And beyond that is another mountain. And he can make out these mountains. And as far as he's concerned, those mountains are pretty close to each other. But if he could gain a better perspective, if he could, if he could zoom out, he would realize that those mountains are actually not in close proximity, but they're actually maybe hundreds if not thousands of miles apart. And so the mountain of verses 6 to 10 is like this in comparison to the mountain of 1 to 5. There is perhaps thousands of years in between verse 5 and 6, and there's no time marker to give us any inclination that time has changed. Now imagine for a second you're a person in the 8th century B.C., all right? The the timeline of chapter 11 ain't going to matter a whole lot to you, all right? All you know is is you're a stump. War is on the horizon. But for us who are on the other side of the coming of the king in his first advent, we live in between verses 4 and 5. We aren't waiting for a king to appear the first time. We're awaiting his second coming. And when he returns, Isaiah says, all creation will be healed. Every tear, every bit of suffering, every drop of pain will cease. Every bit of abuse, every bit of slander, every bit of war will stop. A greater fulfillment of verse 4 will happen. And Jesus will appear and he will literally kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, 2 Thessalonians 2. In other words, all rule that opposes God will be shut down by the coming of the king. Now, friends, how exactly that's going to happen is open to your interpretation. Just be faithful to read the Bible in its entirety. There's a host of perspectives on how and when Christ will return. How symbolic are the symbols? Is the millennium literal? Is it, is it figurative? Is the tribulation seven years? Is there a rapture? Is there a second coming? When, is the, when did all those things happen? I'm not going to delve into that today, much to your chagrin if that's one, you're one of those people. But again, that's not what's going on here. What I want to say, and this is how I want to end, is that this chapter tells us something amazing about Christmas. Friends, this chapter tells us that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. If you belong to this king by faith, Christmas is a call to hope, even though things are bent the wrong way right now. Even though your arm isn't just quite right, even though the darkness is settling in, God keeps his promises. I'm reminded of a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, let me just do this. Have you ever read or saw one of the movies of that particular book, that story? Have you read the book or watched it? Put, put your hand up so I know who I'm talking to today. Okay, most of you. Okay, great. Okay, I was a little worried about this. All right. You remember when selfish Edmund broke away from his brothers and sister, brother and sisters because he wanted the white witch's Turkish delight. He lo- that Turkish delight was just the thought of it melted in his mouth, and so he went off looking for the white witch again. And the white witch captured Edmund and made him his, her slave. So her and the dwarf and, and Edmund get on her sleigh, and they're riding through Narnia. You remember Narnia was in a perpetual winter 
because of the spell that the, the witch placed over it. And as they're going along, what happens? The snow begins to, be, to, to melt, to get slushier. And so the witch's anger, if you're reading the book, you could just see her anger is starting to boil now. And, and, and they come across a clearing, and in the clearing there's this little party of animals that are having a good old time, and they're having a great feast that was given to them by Father Christmas, who is preparing the way for Aslan. And, and she gets so mad at these little animals that she turns them all to stone. And so finally they get back on the sleigh, and the sleigh can't move anymore. And so they all get off the sleigh, and, and so now poor Edmund is being led along by this dwarf and, and by the witch. And as they're walking along, and the book is so much more eloquent than this, the sun begins shining. The sound of waterfalls begin to fill the air, and there's butterflies, and the, there's flowers all over the ground, different kinds of flowers, and, and the snow is, is melting away. And the dwarf realizes what's happening. And he says to the witch, this is no thaw. This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing. So before Aslan comes for the animals and the people of Narnia, things get worse. They're subject to the witch's rage. But they're also getting better. Now, without considering the rest of the book, I want to make a point. The church is in a similar setting today. No matter your end time perspective, it is true that things will get worse before the king returns. Jesus promised that if you're a Christian, you will be hated by all for his name's sake. That there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars. And that many will turn away from the faith. And many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And the devil's rage will intensify. And the love of many will grow cold. I don't care what your end time perspective is. That's what Jesus said would happen. But at the same time, Christmas was God's way of saying, spring is coming. The king in the manger was God's signal to the world that he has begun to make all things new according to prophecy. Friends, listen, peace on earth is not a pipe dream. Peace on earth is not a wish that will never come true for God's people. The restoration of all creation is the reason why Christ came. And we catch glimpses of the kingdom wherever we see Jesus changing lives every Sunday morning when we come together in this place. We get a glimpse of the thaw. We get a glimpse of spring. We get a glimpse of the new creation that's coming when God's people are gathered and worshiping him together. We get a glimpse wherever we see Jesus changing hearts and faith being given and souls being regenerated. Wherever we see miracles taking place and healing and deliverance and prophecy. Wherever we see Christians serving the poor, giving a cup of cold water to them in Jesus' name. That's a sign of spring. That's a sign of the new creation. Those are signals that the root of Jesse, the king, is coming, and that one day all peoples will bow down before him 
in a healed world. So friends, what is Christmas for? Stevie Wonder asks. Two fast application points in summary, then I'm done. Christmas shows us God's heart for his suffering world. Think about it. Think about it. Jesus was born into a world ruled by foreign oppressors to parents who would always be judged by society because as far as they were concerned, Jesus was born out of wedlock, the unthinkable in his day. He was born into a society with both ends of the social spectrum. The elite, the religious leaders, the Romans, and the second-class citizens, the women of the city, the shepherds. And he would grow up and he would heal the sick, the demon-possessed, the lame, the poor, the broken. He would calm storms. Then he would willingly go to the cross in his delight of the fear of the Lord. And he would die for the sin that caused all of that brokenness. Why? Because that newborn Savior's cry was God's shout. I am getting ready to make all things new. Christmas is proof that God is deeply concerned to eradicate disease and death and racism and poverty and abuse in all its forms and war and terrorism and hurtful words and gossip. All injustice, friends. All brokenness. Your brokenness. And friends, this is why from the very early church that Christians have been known as people who go out of their way to serve the poor and the sick and the broken. And those guys were way more poor than we are today. Now, I, I can't much stomach the modern idea of social justice, which is nothing more than repackaged Marxism as far as I'm concerned. But we, when Jesus came, we see that he came because he wanted to make all things new. Where, where the Christian sees brokenness, Jesus entered into the world as our Savior, into the darkness. And friends, that means so too should we. Within our limitations, sacrificially, why? Because Christmas is proof that God cares about this suffering world. Grace City Church, we who have the privilege of making much of Jesus together are those who ought to love our neighbors and need. Have you thought about how you can do that in your family? this Christmas, within your limitations, and with your sacrifice. Second and last, Christmas shows us God's heart for his suffering people. If you're a Christian and you are experiencing grief this time of year, then you know what it means to wait. Whether you are living with loneliness or loss or the fear of just making ends meet as the new year comes. You join in a great brotherhood through the ages who have longed for the Savior's appearing, whether the first or the second. If that's you today, 
I want to encourage you to meditate on the Christmas story. Mark, uh, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, read over that. Let, let the birth of that kingly child wash over your heart as a one-two punch to your fears that God has not left you and that he does keep his promises. The God, the king who wears faithfulness like a belt. Yes, yes, suffering is real. Yes, our darkness is real. But our suffering is permeated with hope. Winter is thawing. Spring is coming. And one day the righteous and faithful one will appear and overthrow suffering and pain and death forever. So if you're a Christian, Isaiah implies a message to you. Wait. Just wait. Hold on a little longer. Winter has been destroyed, I tell you. Aslan is coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.